Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. And on today's show, we are talking to one of the premier historians in America, Thomas Segru, professor of history and social and cultural analysis at NYU, author of the classic The Origins of the Urban Crisis and many, many other books. And we're going to be really talking to him today about race, civil rights, public policy, and really the changing shape demographically in America and how that's going to shape the political futures of race and democracy in the United States and globally. So, Tom, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here, Peniel. Uh, I have to tell the audience that um, Tom Segru is one of my intellectual heroes. He's somebody who I met for the first time 26 years ago uh, in graduate school. He was already um, a, a very, very important assistant professor at University of Pennsylvania, writing all kinds of wonderful articles um, about urban crisis, the civil rights movement, public policy, uh, social justice activism. Um, and then he came out with this book, The Origins of the Urban Crisis. I want to first talk about The Origins of the Urban Crisis. That book is a standard for not only graduate students in the fields of history, but really multiple fields of public policy, of urban studies, of American politics, um, sociology, anthropology. Uh, what inspired you to write that book? Um, and did you think that book would have such an enormous impact intellectually, both then and I would argue um, even more so now? We, we think about the origins of the urban crisis and the long view of African-American history and American history. And even as people talk about capitalism and race right now, you were talking about capitalism and race in that book in very, very explicit ways. So I want to talk about the origins of the urban crisis and its, its impact on you and the field of, of, of just race and democracy and politics. Well, you certainly can't predict as an author whether your book is going to have an impact or whether you're going to be howling into the void. Uh, but I did my best to write it in a way that would speak to multiple audiences from undergraduates learning about modern American history to policymakers to social scientists. Um, but I wrote it um, at a moment when scholars, especially in the social sciences, were interested in questions of race and of the so-called urban underclass of urban poverty. And where, to put it candidly, a lot of the scholarship was flawed, problematic, impoverished in its analytical frameworks. And so I, as a graduate student, encountered the work of um, Charles Murray, uh, the conservative uh, uh, pundit who wrote the book Losing Ground, which argued that the cause of urban poverty in the United States was a welfare system that created perverse incentives that sapped people's will to work and uh, and Black created dependency. Black people, definitely. Uh, and uh, uh, when I was in my first year of graduate school, um, a major work, uh, The Truly Disadvantaged by William Julius Wilson, the then University of Chicago sociologist, came out, who attempted to create a synthesis between arguments about behavior and family as being the cause of um, African-American poverty and changes in the industrial economy. Um, 
those scholars, most of them, um, tended to focus on a pretty small period of time, the 1960s and 1970s. It was the Great Society and the War on Poverty that sapped welfare. It was uh, except the will to work. It was the expansion of welfare, or it was the urban uprisings of the 1960s, or it was the rise of uh, affirmative action that Wilson argued created a two-tiered um, African-American world of the black middle class prospering and a working class left behind. They weren't very historical. And so I decided as a historian to go deeper, to go further back, to really try to make sense out of what happened to American cities and why racial inequality was such a constitutive part of urban life in the United States in that period. And I decided I needed to do it by going to a place. And Detroit, uh, which conveniently happened to be my birthplace, uh, was a place that seemed to embody many of these transformations. It was a city that was booming in the Second World War. It was the nation's arsenal of democracy. It was a magnet for African-American immigrants from around the world, uh, African-American migrants and immigrants from around the world. It was uh, the land of hope and opportunity. But by the 1960s, it had become the symbol of the American urban crisis, uh, a place bitterly divided by racial conflict, a place that witnessed one of the most uh, intense uprisings uh, in the summer of 1967, um, a place where um, poverty uh, and unemployment were increasingly commonplace. So what happened? What happened to this place? It seemed uh, an ideal case study for me. And it was. I went in with some preconceptions, as we all do when we begin our projects. Um, I was going to focus on deindustrialization, on the collapse of the economy and its long-term consequences. But I found a story that was really a lot more interesting and complicated and unexpected. Um, I began looking at the records of civil rights organizations and city agencies charged with dealing with questions of race, and I found a, a mostly forgotten history of grassroots white resistance to African-American migration, to the movement of African-Americans into formerly white sections of the city, a movement that played out uh, in riot of attacks by whites on the first African-American families to move into their neighborhoods, but also played out in city politics. Um, Detroit was a New Deal city. It was a democratic city. It was a liberal city. But white voters were voting for candidates who were opposed to civil rights, who were opposed to the desegregation of public education, who were opposed to uh, uh, placing um, affordable and public housing projects in racially mixed or predominantly white sections of the city. And so I found this un deep undercurrent of racial conflict that played out um, poisonously in the city. And, and when you think about that racial conflict that you write about in the origins of the urban crisis, in terms of temporality and the time, I think way before there was this thesis of a long civil rights movement, the origins of the urban crisis really allows that to unfold, mm -hmm. where you see the civil rights movement that is happening in the 1930s, 40s, Great Depression, um, freedom surges of the 1940s, um, that is talking about many of the same issues that Dr. King is talking about and that Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is talking about. But they're talking about it in a different time period during, during the Second World War. And it's fascinating to see. And also this sort of massive white resistance that predates the Brown um, Supreme Court desegregation decision. One of the conventional explanations for American politics was that um, 
we were marching forward toward racial progress, right? That whites were beginning to open their hearts and embrace the ideals of racial equality and racial integration. And that um, it was only when you had the the, the so-called urban riots and the rise of black power and of uh, identity politics in the 60s and 70s and beyond that whites were alienated and rushed away from the uh, the from liberalism and civil rights to the embrace of the Republican Party and the Detroit story told was a, was a very different one it was a one of fighting African American gains at every step of the way fighting against the inclusion of African-Americans in the workplace during the Second World War um, through hate strikes. Um, that is, whites refusing to work if an African-American were brought into their section of a plant. Fighting the movement of African-Americans into their neighborhoods. Um, arguing that racial mixing was un-American, right? The kind of language that we associate with the Deep South and the era of Jim Crow, it was just as powerful and pronounced and just as effective in Detroit as it was in Birmingham or Montgomery. Yes, there weren't lynchings in Detroit for the most part. There were plenty of acts of violence, but um, African-Americans faced steady, forceful, well-organized white resistance from the grassroots up to the highest levels of elected office in that period. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, your book anticipates um, both some of the work by Ira Katznelson in terms of when affirmative action was white and um, about the New Deal, but also Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law. Um, the whole different fields of scholarship started to look at what you had examined in the origins of the urban crisis, sometimes in a, in a national way, um, um, in terms of institutional racism, racism via public policy, massive white resistance. Uh, I want to talk about um, from the origins of the urban crisis to Sweet Land of Liberty. And really, that book is a massive, um, really new history of the civil rights movement. And that reframes the civil rights uh, historiography. Uh, one, it shifts our 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 uh, geography to the north. And you look at where African-Americans were in the five most populous northern states. And you can list them first. I think it's New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, maybe Michigan and Illinois. Michigan, Illinois, uh -huh. um, and you, 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 you look at the time frame starting in the 1930s and 1940s, and how, and you, you extend it all the way into the 1970s and 80s, and how, when we think about the civil rights movement and that long civil rights struggles, how the North paralleled what was happening in the South. There wasn't just one part of this country that was invested in Jim Crow racial segregation. And what are some of the lessons we learn when we shift the gaze away from Mississippi, away from Alabama, away from Martin Luther King Jr.? And you you look at tenants' rights organizers, you look at Paul Zuber and desegregation um, in, in New Jersey and New York and other places, you really look at these explosive fights that at times made national headlines, but we don't remember it when we think about our national narrative of the heroic civil rights struggle. Mm -hmm. um, there's long been a, a narrative of Southern exceptionalism, right? That the South is the place where the peculiar institution and its poisonous legacy shaped everyday life and shaped politics. Um, and that somehow the North was a refuge, a, a place where the everyday indignities of racial segregation and Jim Crow weren't real. My first book on Detroit made it very clear that systematic racial segregation, systematic 
um, racial disadvantage or advantage for whites um, in the workplace, in the housing market, um, were part of everyday life. Uh, this was a region uh, that was uh, marked from the beginning uh, by racial injustice and racial inequality. And so in many ways, Sweet Land of Liberty is a sequel. Uh, it's a sequel that takes it to the regional stage, not just about Detroit. Detroit figures in the book, of course, but, uh, but I write about the whole swath of cities and suburbs and even small towns um, in the largest, um, the states with the largest African-American populations in the North. Um, and what I uncovered is um, a, a, an important sequel to Origins because I'm not just writing it as I did in Origins about the system. I'm now writing about how people challenge the system from the grassroots through protests, but also through working through the legislative process, working through the ballot box, working through the courts. Um, and all of these were taking place simultaneously beginning in the 1920s. Grassroots activists in northern states, for example, were challenging Jim Crow in hotels, in restaurants, in public parks, in pools, just 10 or 15 years before the famous uh, challenges to Jim challenges to Jim Crow uh, in the South. Um, in fact, many of the activists who cut their teeth challenging segregated restaurants and swimming pools and places like uh, New York and Chicago and Cleveland go to work with and provide advice to their Southern counterparts who in the 1950s and 1960s are challenging lunch counter segregation and movie theater segregation uh, and restaurant segregation in the South. And that's so, a circuit of ideas and flow that we never usually think. That, no, we don't think at all about yeah. the circuit of ideas and flow. But if you think about racial inequality and civil rights as being a national issue, not just a regional issue, then of course there are people who are learning from each other, who are sharing ideas, who are sharing strategies. And you see that. I, I found a really important story. It's not a chapter in my book, but it runs like a black thread throughout the entire narrative. Mm -hmm. The African-American press, nationally organized civil rights groups, all provided a conduit for people and for ideas to circulate. So folks in um, Norfolk, Virginia, were learning about what was happening in Baltimore and what was happening in New York because the Afro-American based in Baltimore, the newspaper, circulated up and down the coast. The Pittsburgh Courier, uh, uh, one of the most influential African-American newspapers, um, had editions in Detroit and editions in Philadelphia and an edition in New York. And so, the, so you could as an African-American reader of the black press, learn about a protest against a segregated movie theater in Cincinnati um, in your local African-American newspaper in Harlem. Um, ideas get exchanged. People learn from what other people are doing. They learn strategies. The civil rights organization, the NAACP, the largest mass membership uh, African-American organization other than a church, other than a religious denomination, it had about 600,000 members at its peak, uh, had a magazine that circulated to all of its local branches and chapters. Local branches and chapters could do what they wanted. They had a lot of autonomy, but they also learned what was happening in other places. And, and so that they began to is see. The crisis. Yeah, the crisis. The crisis allowed branches of the NAACP in New Jersey and branches in Mississippi to learn from each other, to share ideas, uh, and to be inspired by and moved by what their counterparts were doing in different parts of the country. Those ideas circulated on the printed page and they became the basis of. Um, strategizing, uh, of planning protest, of planning litigation. I want to ask you about the second half of Origins and then move on to some other um, topics. Uh, in the second half, you really look at black radicals 
And you talk about Clarence Fournier, you talk about Jesse Gray, you talk about all these different, in, in certain ways, these political radicals who are talking about bread and butter issues. So they weren't, they, on some levels, they're black radicals who want to change the system, but they're actually devoted to housing. Mm-hmm. They're devoted to tenants' rights. They're devoted to very sort of specific, basic things that we can all feel and touch. Um, when you think about Sweet Land of Liberty, what new information and a new conceptualization of both black power and black political radicalism um, did you glean from that? Because when I read that book, I see that you're looking at how black radicals, radicals could be very pragmatic and actually were trying to transform American democracy, even at times when they had rhetoric that was anti-democratic or critiques of democracy were Marxist or feminist or what have you. Our, our traditional histories of civil rights and black power rest on false distinctions, binaries between segregation and integration, between civil rights and black power, or between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm, right? These binaries really obscure so much. Um, what I found all over the place was that the vast majority of grassroots activists or even regional or national leaders were pragmatic. That is, they were willing to adapt depending on the circumstances, to uh, adapt their rhetoric, um, change their strategies. And so you mentioned Paul Zuber. Paul Zuber is um, one of these wonderful unknown figures. I mean, he was known at the time, but had mostly been forgotten by historians. He's disappeared from the historical record. He was a a lawyer who got involved in school integration cases in New Rochelle, New York, in Englewood, New Jersey, and Harlem. Uh, And Um, He was calling for racial integration, ostensibly a moderate mainstream civil rights goal. But he forged alliances with groups like the Nation of Islam. Um, uh, Members of the Nation of Islam came to march with former members of the Congress of Racial Equality who had been on freedom rides in the Englewood movement in Englewood, New Jersey, demanding the racial integration of schools. Whoa, right? This does not fit into our conventional It's either one thing or it's the other. Folks were pragmatic. Or think about maybe the most famous civil rights activist uh, other than the Reverend King in this period, Rosa Parks, uh, who is famous for her role in the Montgomery bus boycott. When she lives in Detroit, she's involved in the labor uh, strand of the civil rights movement where civil rights activists and the organized labor are working closely together. But then she allies herself with black power. Um, We don't think about uh, um, Rosa Parks standing with a clenched fist. We think of her as the sweet woman who wouldn't give up her seat on the bus because she was tired. Well, gosh, for most African-American activists, um, the goal was to get dignity, to get results. And if that meant allying yourself with uh, black power advocates, so be it. If it meant using the rhetoric uh, of, uh, of, of race pride as a way of challenging um, school segregation and calling for integration, if it worked, it worked. And so, so many activists f- refused to be confined to any single identity. And so it's that pragmatic side, particularly the issues of how people live on an everyday basis. Jim Crow didn't just manifest itself in cross burnings and acts of racial violence and race hatred. It manifested itself most powerfully in the everyday injustices that people faced, being stopped and harassed by the police for for the, the, the crime of walking down a sidewalk in a white neighborhood, um, of moving into a formerly white uh, neighborhood, of taking a job that had been perceived as whites only, uh, 
these are the sorts of everyday realities that folks struggle to to try to improve and to and and to mend. And uh, uh, so we need to think about folks' emphasis on the not just on the means, but on the ends. And the ends were quality education. The ends were decent housing. The ends were jobs that paid well and that were secure. Right? These aren't. Um, hugely lofty ideals, um, they're the stuff of people's everyday lives, of their everyday existence. And uh, I found that um, recovering that, those threads of activism, not just the activists who were good in front of a camera, not just the ones who were great at playing the media or using um, powerful, sometimes polemical language to rouse uh, the masses, but the folks who were quietly involved in doing the door knocking and the uh, the sitting through long meetings in community organization halls and in churches, they're the folks whose histories are essential to understanding why the civil rights movement was a movement, why the Black Power movement was a movement, not just um, some charismatic uh, people playing to a camera. Now, you've written about Barack Obama, and I know you wrote a whole book on it, uh, on him, not even past. I want to ask you about Obama and urban policy and then get into um, immigration uh, as we conclude, um, you wrote a terrific chapter, um, a decent-sized um, urban policy in uh, the Julian Zelizer anthology, uh, The Presidency of Barack Obama, First Historical Assessment. I want you to talk about that chapter, about um, on some levels, when I read the idea of urban policy, I always think of black folks. You know, I think about racial segregation because I'm not thinking of urban policy as just maybe pro-gentrification, even though I think a lot of urban policy is. I want you to talk about Obama and urban policy and really what happened during the eight years of Obama in this context of urban policy, education, inequality, right? Um, uh, and, and, and really that as a backdrop for our discussion of diversity and inclusion uh, uh, um, after this. But because when I think about Obama as a community organizer, I think people were very excited about when you read Dreams from My Father, he talks about being in Chicago, Alt-Geld Gardens on the west side of Chicago, and he's at those community meetings. He's, you know, before Black Lives Matter and after the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So it seemed like this would be a president who really uh, would do amazing things when it came to urban policy. But it didn't quite shape up to be that. Right. I mean, Obama was maybe the first urban president that the United States has had in about 100 years. Um, that is someone who spent his entire adult lifetime pretty much living in big cities. And Chicago was formative for him politically, intellectually. Um, not just his work as a community organizer, but his um, living in Chicago in the 1990s, working as a lawyer, running for a electoral office becoming uh, a state senator in Illinois. All of that was um, part of his urban trajectory. And so there was enormous hope uh, in 2008 and early 2009 when Obama uh, came to office that he would be a president who would put the long neglected issues of infrastructure, of jobs, of systematic segregation and discrimination, um, of housing uh, front and center in, uh, in his administration's domestic politics. And some early signs looked favorable. He created a White House Office of Urban Affairs, um, something that um, the White House hadn't had since uh, the Carter administration in the, in the 1970s. Uh, but a couple of things happened along the way. Um, some in Obama's control, some not. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, for one, um, the issue of uh, of cities fell to the wayside uh, as the president put healthcare to the front of his agenda. It should be said, just an aside, healthcare is an issue that has really significant implications for cities because hospitals and and healthcare in general are one of the biggest employment sectors in cities mm. and are also enormously important employment sector for African Americans and other people of color. Um, so there were imp- urban implications and implications for, for race, but they were secondary. Um, Obama faced intense opposition um, within his own party, but especially from the increasingly vocal and powerful and obstructionist uh, Republican Party to even the mildest and and most uncontroversial of domestic policies. And that opposition intensified after 2010 uh, when Republicans took control uh, uh, of Congress after the midterm elections. And so Obama faced significant external obstacles to uh, an urban agenda. Republicans began to cry out that um, Obama was a radical who was attempting to impose this um, urban agenda in a way to snuff out suburbia and to restrict people's choice and, and to drain tax dollars into the cesspool of cities. And uh, even though most of what he proposed was very modest in its aspirations and it, its its budgetary costs. Republicans, in other words, for a long time had made a lot of political hay out of conflating urban issues and um, race, especially African-Americans, and using that as a, a wedge politically. And they continued to do that with a great deal of effectiveness in the Obama administration. That said, Obama was very much a creature of democratic centrist politics in the 1990s and the 2000s. His urban policy focused on modest public-private partnerships that called for using the federal government to broker deals with foundations and nonprofits and with corporate donors to accomplish relatively minor um, changes to support, for example, the construction of charter schools or um, the creation of mixed-income low-rise housing developments um, in cities. Um, Projects that weren't very big in scale or, frankly, very big in ambition. And one could say both this was a a sign of the limits of the Democratic Party's urban vision in the era that Obama came of age in, uh, but also um, maybe all he could do given that the winds of opposition from the Tea Party and from the Republican right were so fierce Mm. uh, that – Anything even, you know, a little bit substantial in terms of urban policy would have been snuffed immediately by by Congress. And so when we think about where we're at now, um, post-Obama, in this era of uh, increasing racial nationalism, um, but also increasing demographic changes. We think about immigration, and you've written, you've edited a recent book on immigration um, called Immigration and Metropolitan Revitalization in the United States. And um, I want us to really grapple with that. I mean, your your whole, uh, you know, intellectual and scholarly career has been dealing with sort of race, um, social justice, but also economic and political transformations, both at a local, regional, national and global scale. And I think with this book, you truly bring all that together. Mm -hmm. So when we think about immigration and we think about things like diversity, inclusion, inequality, you know, where are we at right now and where what are the political futures that that we may see? That's a great question. Well, the color of America has changed, um, as many have commented, as a result of immigration policies that 
open the door for newcomers from Latin America, from Asia, and to a lesser but still significant extent from Africa, um, not to mention the Middle East and, 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 and other parts of the world. Um, we have a rhetoric around immigration, especially the anti-immigration rhetoric that is 100 plus years old that immigrants are dangerous, un-American outsiders um, who are unassimilable, who will not become a part of the mainstream, that will um, take jobs away from deserving white Americans um, and not be loyal to the United States. Uh, um, they're dangerous. They're a menace. They're a threat. Uh, and then we have the reality of immigration to the United States, which is that Immigration has played a really critical role in the transformation of metropolitan economies. Uh, uh, most cities, uh, major cities in the United States between 1990 and 2010 gained population. And there's a lot of talk about, oh, young white people and empty nesters are moving in. But white whites, well-to-do whites moving to cities are a drop in the bucket. The vast uh, majority of the increase in population in cities came from immigrants coming in, often moving to places that had suffered depopulation and disinvestment, um, and um, in the process, transforming urban space, um, revitalizing commercial districts, um, bringing um, energy to, to, to markets, attracting investment, and, and, and benefiting um, residents of all backgrounds in cities. If you go to uh, uh, African-American neighborhoods where there had been massive disinvestment for decades, you'll find neighborhood stores run by Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and Dominicans. Uh, you'll also find, um, I, I, I love going to ethnic neighborhoods and walking around and exploring. One of my favorite places to shop is a, is a, is a Pan-Asian supermarket um, in Philadelphia. And what's interesting about the Pan-Asian supermarket is you go in and the clientele of the market is Asian, but also African-American and also Latino. In fact, they've started a whole section of, of, of Caribbean food products of mangoes and of plantains and things that you don't find in, in – uh, uh, mangoes you can find in Asia. But a lot of things you wouldn't find in a conventional Asian grocery store um, because they realize that they're, 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 they're providing um, – consumer goods that are of demand to, to folks across from the racial and ethnic spectrum. Um, immigration has also been wrongly associated with a rise in crime. And as we show in, as some of our essays show in this book, um, areas with, with immigration, significant numbers of immigration have experienced a decline in crime. And that decline in crime has benefited every segment of the urban population, whites, African-Americans, and immigrants themselves. And so what we try to do in this book is to is to um, talk about the challenges of the influx of immigrants, particularly to suburban communities. A majority of immigrants are living in suburbs today where school districts and public officials are simply not capable of dealing with this influx of um, outsiders speaking different languages. I mean, they freak out. They, they really don't know how to manage non-English speaking children in schools. They're struggling. But at the same time, the ways in which that influx of immigrants has um, uh, changed housing markets, changed uh, consumer markets and, and, and business districts, and um, transformed labor markets, mostly to the benefit of, uh, of, of residents regardless of their background. So we're trying to debunk a lot of the myths while still being clear-eyed about the challenges that, that um, immigration poses. And when we think about diversity and inclusion, 
time in the 21st century, how can that be connected to um, justice and citizenship and equality? Well, we're a diverse country, um, more diverse than we've been uh, maybe ever. But we're also a a country that needs more than diversity. We have to think about the ways in which um, uh, inequalities by race, by ethnicity, and by class remain profoundly unresolved. Unresolved some 60 or 70 years after the civil rights movement uh, took to the streets demanding change. Right? We have not completed the tasks of providing well-paying jobs on a non-discriminatory basis mm-hmm. of economic security. We have not solved the problem of profound racial and ethnic inequities in public education. In fact, our schools have grown more segregated and less equal uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, so there are a lot of unfinished goals from the civil rights struggle. If we simply... Um, kind of rest on the hope that somehow the changing of America's color and the growing diversity of the population is going to inevitably lead to a shift in politics and the solution to these, pro- these, these problems were diluted. Um, we need to organize. We need to build unlikely coalitions across racial and ethnic divisions. We need to come up with solutions that challenge head on the problems of racial inequality in housing and education and in the workplace. And uh, not simply assume that somehow we're going to be on inevitable forward march of progress. Fortunately or unfortunately, in the last few years, we've seen very clearly that um, uh, we can regress, uh, that the arc of justice can veer off course, uh, not just uh, you know in a, in a positive direction. And so we need to think about ways to, to, to veer that arc um, back toward the path to justice again. My final question is one about optimism. Are you optimistic um, about some kind of social transformation? Um, The midterm elections, a lot of people came out. seems like uh, we are in a period of time where people are very politically active and politically engaged, including certain um, marginalized communities and communities of color, especially communities of color led by black women, Latinx women who are coming out to the polls. They're registering people to the polls. They're organizing on their own and not just for yearly elections and and federal elections, but just doing all kinds of important and innovative things in places like Philadelphia, in Austin, Texas, all over the country. Mm -hmm. So are you are you optimistic about um, change uh, for the better change that's producing more equality and more justice? Uh, I am optimistic. as a friend of mine says, an optimist with an insurance policy. <laughs> I, I, I think right now um, there is a, an enormous amount of ferment of grassroots activism on the ground that's super exciting. Cities were during the civil rights era, were during the, the, the black power era, um, and are today real crucibles of creative activism. Um, there's more going on and more hope for change um, going on at the grassroots than we've seen in a very long time. And um, that that gives me optimism. But uh, countering that optimism are long-term forces that are still militating against um, the success of those organizations. The powerful, the rich um, are more segregated and in many respects um, more effective at working the system to guarantee their interests than they ever have been. Um, um, they profit from 
predatory lending, from um, from uh, housing policies that 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 disadvantage working people and people of color. Um, they profit from the inequitable distribution of educational and public resources in the United States. Um, they're unwilling to pay for it in the form of taxes, and so. We face really, really intense headwinds. But what I will say is what we see going on in New York, the effort to challenge the public subsidies of one of the richest corporations in the world, the rise of insurgent candidates challenging um, hidebound politicians and at the city council level, at the school district level, uh, for state uh, house and congress uh, – these are super um, heartening uh, for those of us who care about um, justice in the United States today. Um, but we can't sit back and, and coast. Um, the struggle is going to be a hard-fought one, and the forces um, dedicated to maintaining the status quo are powerful, well-funded, well-organized, and uh, are going to take a lot of creative challenges from a lot of places to change. All right. Thank you. Um, this has been a real treat. Thank you. Great discussion. Tom Segru, professor of history and social and cultural analysis at NYU, and really one of the foremost uh, experts on race and democracy, public policy uh, in the United States and the world. Thank you. Thank you, Peniel. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.